listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 33, Very Superstitious. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My conversation with lots of appellate lawyers is coming up next. So this week's show is about superstitions, rituals, quirky habits of appellate lawyers. And I thought I'd start out with one of my own. Now, I'm not generally a superstitious person, but we've developed a theory in my office about what we call cursed files. Now, sometimes you have a case where something just goes wrong. And I don't even mean a big thing, just something that needs to be fixed. An incorrect filing, a wrong attachment, an outdated certificate of service, something that's embarrassing but fixable. These cases become cursed. Now, again, not in a big way. It doesn't mean you're going to lose, it, nothing like that. It means these mistakes, they rarely happen once in the lifetime of a case. Once you have some kind of procedural or technical mistake, the odds of another one go up astronomically. And it's almost hard to keep it from happening again. So we treat these potentially cursed cases with extreme care. We check, we double check everything in a cursed file, and I think you should too. Is there any rational basis for this? Probably not. But it happens. And you can't convince me otherwise. So, if you've experienced this too, drop me a note. It'd be nice to know if other people have the same beliefs. And it'd be nice to know that I'm not alone. So, Denine Wasilek, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dwayne. So, we are talking about rituals, habits, uh, appellate related you know, sort of quirky things we do. And do you have some that you can talk about? I, I, there's two that I can mention. I think one is sort of just my general ritual for uh, preparing for oral argument. And the second actually is a little silly, but I, um, it, it's the, it's my, sort of my ritual for finalizing a brief actually. And I think that that's um, a little unusual compared to what some other folks do, but I find it really works for me. Okay. So, so anyway, for finalizing the briefs, what I, um, I am one of those weird lawyers who actually insists on doing the table of authorities herself. Um, and I know a lot of folks like don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but (laughs) I find, you know, once I learned how to use the tools in Microsoft Word correctly to do it, um, I, I find that A, I can do it faster than anyone else. But B, it helps me really sort of get through and do my final check to make sure that I'm citing what I think I'm citing and that I know what's there. Um, and I have some comfort that I've really set up the brief correctly. And so I, I know it's unusual, but I, I am one of those lawyers who insists on doing their own table of authorities rather than downloading that to someone else for that reason. Well, and that might be unusual, but I have to tell you, I do the same thing. And do you it's really? not- yeah, it's not because I don't have a great assistant. I do, 
but I'm so particular about exactly the way those things are that um, I do generally do it myself. I usually ask my assistant to check it for me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a double check, but sure. um, I, I try to do it myself too. But although, you, you know, use part- the tools in the program to do it, do you use word or do you use something else to do it? I use word, but I do not use the, the tools. It's something oh. that together manually. Oh, yeah. see, I do use the tool so that, but I want to make sure that it's updating correctly. And I'm very particular about making sure that my styles are set up correctly so that I just have to press a button and it's magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and if I change things, what's good about that is if I have to make a change, I press a button, it's magic again. And I don't have to do things manually. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a better way, but I have a system down and it, it you know, it tends to work. It tends to work pretty well. But I do wonder in today's day and age of tables of authorities aren't a little bit anachronistic anyway, because if a judge wants to find a particular case in your brief, chances are they're going to search for it rather than search for your table of authorities and then page through your brief. So, Well, you know, I, I know what you mean, but I think on the other hand, I, I, I kind of feel like when I'm reading a brief that I haven't looked at for the first time, like if I'm reading a, an, an, a, an appellee's brief when I'm in the appellate, I actually do start by looking at the table of authorities just to see, you know, am I recognizing these cases? Are they citing what I think they were going to cite? Like those kinds of things. I think it's a tool for that, even if you don't even need sort of the page numbers to find where it is, it can be helpful right. to see all in one place where the cases are that are cited. Yeah, no, I can see that. And, anyway. you know, <laughs> nobody's jumping over themselves to amend the rules to make things easier for us, right? So No, no, they are not. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I mean, it's, it's all about be- making it for the judges that, you know, I actually had a little conversation on Twitter not that long ago where someone said, was talking about you know, one space versus two space and something else again. And I was just like, well, until I know that my judges who are reading what I'm writing want it, you know, in footnotes too, because like we know the second district, for example, does not like footnotes. Um, so, you know, even if I think Brian Garner is right about that, I'm not going to do it because I know the judges don't like it. So you just got to, you know, know your audience kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great. And what was the other thing we were going to talk about? Oh, so for, for oral argument, I just have a very, um, ritualized system for getting ready for oral argument um, that includes, um, you know, I mean, some of the basics of just like, you know, having a, having, having someone pull all the cases and make sure that they're all, they've all been site checked and there's nothing, no surprises about what's happened since we filed the briefs um, and having that all in one place in a very particular format for me to start my OA prep. But once I'm sort of in the thick of getting ready for oral argument, um, you know, I think the one thing that I'm a little different than many people is I, I'm really insistent on getting it down to one page and um, so that my notes are really clear that I can find whatever I need on one page. Sometimes it can be one page per if, issue if there's a lot of issues or, you know, or really weighty issues. But if, if I can get it down to one single page, I will. But despite that, I still waste space on that one page by by writing out at the top, may it please the court, Deneen Waslick for parties such and such, I would like to reserve X number of minutes. Like, like I have to write that part out, even if the rest of it is, is so shorthand that it's really just to remind me where to find something or what a case is. But um, that sort of having that part written down is like a security blanket for me to start the argument and make sure I say those very important things. The other thing that I also, um, I usually also will write at the bottom of the page, um, 
you know, something along the lines of, of, and we, you know, and I rest on my briefs for, you know, anything else that we haven't addressed here in oral argument, just to remember to say that, um, mm. which is, um, which is kind of a silly waste of space when you really think about it, but somehow it, it, it helps me sort of get through that whole process. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's unlikely we'll we'll forget our names, right? But it, it still is. <laughs> it's not that I forget my names, and I'll forget to do that because I'm so eager to yeah. jump into the argument. You know what I mean? So I I, I agree with you. You know, I I don't want to give it away because I'm not sure what order these interviews will appear in the show. But you won't be the only person on the show who talks about reducing their notes to to uh, one page. Yeah. And I'll tell you that I do something similar, except I give myself two pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rationale for that is I take a a very small, you know, like a half inch or, or three quarter inch three ring binder to the podium. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I open up and I open it up so that it's open to those two pages. So I have the page on the left side and the page on the right side. So two pages, no flipping. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. I mean, so I, I was a pretty early adapter for iPads. And so I, I tried to go to the podium with my one page only and, uh, you know, and on top of a notepad, if I feel like I need to write something down, although I don't actually end up using that. Um, and then I have the iPad as my security blanket with the whole record and those kinds of things, um, you know, kind of sitting there. I have learned to have, if there's a particular page that's particularly important, to maybe have a printout of that too, but that's not even necessarily necessary. Um, I just sort of rely on the iPad for all of that. But yeah, I like your idea of having sort of the book open, but you have your two pages kind of, kind of supported no matter what happens. Um, right. I will say also ritual-wise, I did insist on standing for my 11th circuit oral argument that was telephonic, even though nobody was going to see me. It just felt weird to sit. Hmm. Yeah. I have uh, an oral argument coming up and I haven't addressed that yet uh, as to how exactly I'm going to do that. But I've been thinking about that as well. And we're, we're sort of building out a hearing, a virtual hearing room. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if, if and when we ever go back to the law firm. And part of my input was it needs to be a standing desk that will go up and down yeah. so we can have that option. Yeah. I mean, I think I, for me, at least the temptation was, oh, I have my whole computer. I have everything at my fingertips. Let me have everything here. And I made myself sort of avoid that temptation. And, um, you know, I did use my computer instead of my iPad, but I just had the few tabs open that I would have had open, like waiting on my iPad if I needed them. And I still had a piece of paper in front of me that was my my notes kind of spread out and ready to go the way I would have if I had brought it up to a podium. I'm lucky that I do have a standing desk that I can pop up and down as need be. And so I just practice that way. Yeah. Well, you know, again, there's something to be said for tradition and doing things the way we we do them, you know? Yep. And also dressed for entirely like I was going to be in court, even though it was telephonic and it was not even Zoom, but telephonic, you know, but I just kind of felt like I had to be suited up in uniform to do it, do what had to be done. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks, Danine. I really appreciate uh, you being on the podcast yet again, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Looking forward to hearing everybody else's stories. Thanks, Danine. All right. Bye-bye. So, Joe Eagleton, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Great to be back. Sure. So, this week, we're talking about a poet rituals and quirky things that we do 
And I thought you uh, you mentioned you might have uh, have something you could talk about. Well, I have uh, kind of an anxiety-relieving method that has become an accidental superstition, I guess, before uh, oral argument. So, uh, you know, I always have a little bit of nervous energy, usually the night before, which is, you know, about the same time when I start to feel like I've done all the prep that I can really do, um, and I'm just really in my head. And so, I had started, you know, the first couple oral arguments I did, I would just go out and take a jog. Um, the night before the OA. And this is, you know, more or less fun depending on where I am. You know, if I'm out of town, uh, it can be kind of nice to jog around and kind of see the scenery. But um, it it started to become kind of a superstition now where I do it every time I have an oral argument, uh, you know, big, small, or otherwise. Um, I can't say that it's always a successful superstition. I certainly haven't won all of my (laughs) oral arguments, but I haven't, you know, fainted or completely stumbled over my own words or anything like that. And so um, it's just kind of become a habit and a ritual. And so now, you know, the night before in OA, uh, I always make sure to set some time aside to go jog. And I found that it really does kind of help clear my mind. And I'll sometimes look like a crazy person. I think I'll be talking out loud to myself while I'm out, uh, kind of rehearsing a little bit. Um, but it's, you know, it's become, become kind of fun and just kind of something that I've incorporated into my prep. No, I appreciate that uh, both as a superstition and probably as a, a real biological thing. I mean, I think that that probably makes a lot of sense to uh, to burn off that stress, to help you sleep a little bit, to clear your mind. And, you know, does that, if you're traveling for an OA, then do you run in wherever wherever you are? You tend to go the night before? I do, yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm- I'm not, you know, building my travel plans around it or anything, but I typically am, am getting into my location the day before anyway. Um, and so, you know, if I'm flying or something like that, I've usually done some prep on the plane and I'll settle in and just kind of feel like, okay, uh, time to get out. So I think, you know, I had a, an OA in uh, Washington, D.C. a year or so ago and uh, was staying sort of near the National Mall and uh, kind of went out and jogged down to the the monuments and check those out kind of made me feel very patriotic while I was in town too. Um, when I was in Tallahassee, uh, you know, for an oral argument, I would jog around the FSU campus a little bit. So I try to kind of make it a little bit of a sightseeing fun outing for myself too, which I found kind of does help take my mind off of the oral argument too and, and kind of ground me a little bit in the fact that uh you know i'm there for my my one little case but uh there's still a lot else happening in the world well and i will do the same thing to some extent joe if i especially if i'm traveling i will you know try and walk around the area where you get there early enough in the day that you can settle in walk around a little bit and just sort of you know, get your mind, uh, together, but I do more walking than running, but you know, <laughs> Hey, either way it works. Whatever puts your mind at ease, right? Yeah. You're, you're making me very, uh, sentimental for OA travel though, which <laughs> I know I was thinking <laughs> that an oral argument actually sounds pretty good right now. Right. It does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Traveling at all. But yeah, the idea of, I don't know when we'll be back to that, but the idea of traveling for oral argument and checking into a hotel, it always kind of adds a little bit of excitement, I think, when to, you know, travel for it. I mean, it's certainly a lot of benefits to the virtual setting and, and costs for clients and things like that. But just from a from a lawyer standpoint, there is something exciting about traveling for an oral argument. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. There definitely is. And, and yeah, I, you know, I think that virtual arguments will become more commonplace and more standard on cases where it, where it makes sense. But I'm hoping that there'll always still be big enough cases, right? And certainly, if I were ever to, uh, you know, have an opportunity to go to the U.S. Supreme Court again, I would be very disappointed to do that by telephone or by Zoom. I, I want to travel. <laughs> very different experience. Plus, then nobody can flush the toilet while you're doing your oral <laughs> argument, you know. <laughs> the, the hazards of uh, telephonic uh, arguments. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the story. Yep. Thanks, Dwayne. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now, add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, Check out episode nine of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious, and the in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Morgan Weinstein, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Happy to be back. Always happy to be here. Right. And so, you know, this week we're talking about habits, quirky habits that we have uh, related to appellate practice. And I think that uh, you have something you can tell us about. Yeah. And I'm glad that we're calling this habits instead of superstitions, because I don't want to feel like I have a lot of those. But I definitely have some quirks about me in the way that I practice. Um, One thing, and this is something that I've been broken of. I used to have this habit and now I don't. I used to drive up for oral argument the morning of oral argument to almost any of the district courts of appeal. Um, you know, not the first cause that's too far, but the rest of them. Um, so that would mean leaving at like four in the morning sometimes and thinking about the oral argument while I was on the way up to the DCA. Um, and that was hugely productive until one day when I was driving up to the second DCA out in Tampa and I was on state road 60 and there was a turned over tractor trailer taking up both lanes of the road for a couple of hours. Um, as you can imagine, that was a little bit stressful. And after multiple calls to um, judicial assistance and getting pushed back to the end of the docket when I was supposed to be first up, I no longer do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> two that I still have are I don't like to listen to angry music while I'm briefing. And the reason for that is um, I find that I can tend to be a little caustic if I do. Um, so it's really like it sets the mood for me. It's not just something to have in the background. It's definitely something to have in the background. Um, but it also affects the way that I write. And I've found that if I'm listening to sad music or happy music or insert emotion that is not filled with anger, um, I'm more likely to be measured and less likely to, um, paint the facts in a way that will make it seem like I am not the disinterested person that I'm supposed to be when I'm drafting a brief. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that makes total sense. That's interesting. I have never been anyone who can listen to music, certainly music with any sort of lyrics or, you know, beat to it when I'm writing. I prefer, I prefer quiet, but, but, but that makes sense. Are you generally in the habit of listening to angry music? Well, no, I'm generally in the habit of listening to music, but I've also been disabused of that habit a little bit. Um, ever since I had a child, um, the existence of quiet has been, um, a welcoming <laughs> and it doesn't yeah so there's there's more likely to be times when i'm not listening to music while i'm doing other things and just enjoying the fact that there is not noise going on yeah oh, that, that also makes a lot of sense um and so the second quirk that i have is um i i make sure in every brief that i draft or at least every initial brief and answer brief that i throw in a fact that is unhelpful to my client um, it'll have to be a fact that actually exists on the record, but I want to make sure it's there. Um, I like Kurt Vonnegut a lot, and he was joking about authors one time, and he said, I never knew a writer's wife who wasn't beautiful. And uh, w- what he meant by that is obviously, like, he can see through the fact that you are just bolstering the thing that you are talking about. And so when a writer is talking about his or her spouse, you know, of course they're the most beautiful person in the world. It's like the person who talks about their kids and they're the greatest one ever. Um, and you don't want your brief to seem that way. You are not your brief spouse. You are not your brief parent and you don't want to come across that way. So I like to throw in a fact that puts my clients in not the best light. So long as it actually exists in the record, um, or not even not the best light, but is not as helpful to my appeal as the rest of what I want to say, because I want to be persuasive, but I also want to sound credible while trying to persuade. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly on board with you, and I think that I tend to include facts that are, you know, not the greatest for the client in the sake of full disclosure. But it sounds to me like you're saying that it's sort of a checklist to make sure that you actually insert one of those facts for, for all the reasons you described. That's, that's, that's interesting. I've never heard anybody say that, and I, I like it. Yeah, and I mean, it's part of, like, Part of it is full disclosure, but part of it is also creating what you're going to disclose about. I would much rather be in a position where I am disclosing a fact that is not helpful to my client, but is also not a key part of the case um, than I would be having, um, you know, my statements about key parts of the case um, scoured for whether I'm actually being honest about them because I can't seem to get out of the way of fawning over my client. I'm curious, do you, when you have clients who are active enough in the process to read your briefs and draft, and I know it depends on your practice. Some of us have clients who do that, some don't. But to the extent you do, do clients ever ask you about that? Or do they ever say, hey, why are we putting this fact in? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it doesn't happen all that often, but sometimes they will ask about why we're putting a particular fact in um, when it seems like it could be detrimental to what we're trying to go with overall. Um, and the answer that I usually give is that when you're drafting a statement of facts and presenting it to the appellate court, um, you're in the dual role as advocate and person who's providing information to the appellate court, and they expect you to fulfill the second part of that role, too. And so it's better to, quote unquote, disclose things um, that don't go to the heart of the case. Hmm. Oh, that, that's uh, that's a great tip, Morgan. I like that a lot. That's um, I'm going to. I'm writing that down. <laughs> I have I have enjoyed sharing it to the extent that appellate judges do not listen to this podcast. That's right. <laughs> well, we don't know. We, we I can only hope, I guess. But 
Morgan, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the podcast again. Have a great one. So Matt Canigliaro, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Yeah, and this, this is like a flash way back, right? Because you're the original guest from episode one. So uh, here you are in episode 33, and look how far we've come. <laughs> it just means I'm old news. <laughs> right. So this week we were talking to lots of folks about, you know, uh, appellate rituals and quirky habits and that kind of thing. And I hear that you, you have one that you can share with us. You know, I probably have a few that I could share, but most of them are really boring. So I'll, I'll give you one. <laughs> well, that, we are appellate lawyers. <laughs> it, yeah, well, it's part for the course, right? But right. I'll, I'll give you one that, uh, at a minimum, it has a certain level of entertainment value, which is, uh, it, at this point, I religiously check before I leave for an oral argument. And even more importantly, after I arrive, wherever I'm going, uh, for the oral argument, assuming there's an overnight involved, uh, make sure you actually have your full suit with you. Hmm. And here's why I had a case, this is going back a while, but I had a case in the Florida Supreme court. So I live in St. Petersburg, work in Tampa. Oral argument obviously is in Tallahassee. So I typically drive to Tally and had an OA up there. I left the day before and I did what I normally do. I grabbed my, my suit. I you know threw it in a, a coat bag, uh, grabbed whatever else, shirt, tie, belt, etc., And traveled up to Tally. But I had something going on that day. And for whatever reason, my, my mind was occupied with all kinds of stuff. In addition to the oral argument the next morning. So I get up to Tally and I'm, I'm thinking about whatever I was thinking about and working rehearsing, kind of prepping for the argument and check into the hotel room and, and, and don't give a thought at all to, to wardrobe until the next morning. And here's probably the real mistake I made. I, it, not only did I not give a thought to wardrobe until the next morning, I didn't give a thought to it till probably about an hour before I needed to be <laughs> in court. Right. Cause I was staying at a hotel that was just down the street. You know, I had no issues with time. And so with about an hour until I needed to be there, I I'm still in the hotel room and I thought, all right, I better get ready. So I go ahead and get ready and I go to put on my suit and realize I had grabbed the, the hanger that should have had the complete suit. But in fact, it only had the coat and not the slacks. No, no. And yeah, and it, I need to be in court in an hour, and I have no pants. <laughs> and, and I thought, what? I, my mind is racing. Like, what am I gonna do? And I, I, do I do I know somebody who's about my size? Like in town, I can just call them up and say, could I borrow pants? And 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 nothing good was coming to mind. And and I kind of panicked there for a bit before I I, I did get lucky. I realized that I had driven up wearing uh, sort of work-ish clothes the day before. I didn't come up in my usual shorts and boat shoes. I actually had on a, a, a coat with slacks. And the, now the slacks didn't match the suit coat I had brought. It would normally have been a suit. Sure. Uh, but I was like desperate. And I thought, I'm just going to have to wear these. So I... I did. And I go to the courthouse and I just, the whole 
time. Of course, I'm not the first argument. I'm like the maybe the, the second argument or third, or I wasn't last. And there was some argument after mine that had the courtroom full of people. And it was much more of a, a who's who kind of day in tally where lots of folks in town were there. And, and they were all staying for the last argument. So, so I had to spend, I don't know, an hour or two sitting there. And then, then I had to get up to argue. And then all these folks were, were there waiting for the argument that came after mine. And, and all I could think was, everybody thinks I am the slackest <laughs> lawyer to show up without a suit to the state Supreme Court. Now, the folks who didn't, like the, 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 the folks who couldn't tell were the justices. Right. Because when, behind when they saw and, me, I was seated at the table, and then it's a real quick stand and walk to the podium. I'm certain there's zero chance that any justice noticed that my pants did not match my coat. <laughs> but I can assure you, the entire courtroom saw, and they all probably thought, what is Canigliero? Is he that slack that he doesn't care enough to wear a suit to the Florida Supreme Court? And and the whole time I'm I'm up there and I'm arguing and I'm very conscious that behind me everybody's probably laughing at what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. And and so my my lesson was always always make sure there's a pair of pants underneath that jacket <laughs> when you pick up the hanger with the suit on it. And and the and the one here's a funny sort of end to the story after the argument's over. I get an email from my mom and it says, great tie. <laughs> She's watching the live feed. <laughs> yes, she watched it on TV. I guess whatever she saw it on yeah. the internet or she may actually have found the, the broadcast channel. Yeah. And, and she, she liked my tie. And so I wrote her back and said something like, yeah, but it's a good thing you didn't see my pants. <laughs> Oh no, that's 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 a great story. You know, I, I am so paranoid about that. I check and double check, even though that has it has yet to happen to me. But what I try to do is when I get to the hotel, uh, I try and get early enough that I can settle in and get dinner and in whatever you know whatever city I'm in. But uh, I always lay out the suit, the pants, the socks, the belt in like the shape of a person, <laughs> you know, on the couch. Oh, wow. So, so that I'm sure I, I've got a visual confirmation that it's all there. I figure, you know, well, before COVID times, you probably had until 9 or 10 o'clock, you could get to a men's warehouse or something if you had to, you know. But <laughs> Well, you know, I really debated, like, did I have time yeah. to get over to the mall mm-hmm. and buy something? And, and I actually thought really hard about checking in because you check in like, I don't know, 45 minutes or, or more before the arguments even start. And I thought about going over, checking in and leaving, <laughs> going to the store and buying something that I could then wear back. Yep. And, and I just, I decided I couldn't do it. I was like, I'd rather just be mortified and everybody think I don't know how to put a suit together or it wasn't really that I, my assumption, my working assumption was everyone would think I just didn't care enough to wear a real suit. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I did consider leaving and I, I just kept thinking, no, but what if something happens where I go over to the store to buy something and then I can't get back for some reason. And I'm, I'm picturing calling up the clerk's office going, I know I was there and I know I checked in, but I had to leave. <laughs> but I can't tell <laughs> so you why. I didn't. 
Yeah, well, just be <laughs> thankful it wasn't jeans or khakis that you wore up the day before, right? <laughs> well, then I might have had a try, right? Yeah. I might have had a... To, to do something. I'm thinking, who's my size that I know who lives really close? <laughs> the, the Dave Letterman look with a suit coat and jeans probably wouldn't go over well at the court. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. That is a great story. I really appreciate uh, I appreciate you telling it. Well, anytime. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to all my guests for being on the podcast again. They're biographical and contact information are in the show notes. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is also in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Your contact information also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contact list, so that you're ready when a client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode of the show will release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. 